Welcome to the Exotic Pet Collective. My name is Richard, and we've got a very exciting podcast set up today, a special guest that's going to be on just a moment. But before we get into that, I do want to thank the sponsors of today's show. And our first sponsor today is no stranger to the podcast, and that is our friends over at Arthropod Ambassadors. Now, their aim is to support others interested in bugs and the well-being of arthropods around the world. They're working on spreading education with resin art, the mobile bug zoo, and informational YouTube videos, as well as a recent new line of stickers and pins. From compost-enhancing roly-polies to alien-like top predator mantises, arthropods come in all shapes and sizes and are waiting to teach us more about the earth that we all have in common. So if you're looking for a mantis, jumping spiders, isopods, roaches, or assassin bugs, head on over to arthropodambassadors.com and check out what species they have available. You can also find very helpful care videos for your pet mantis, scorpions, vingaroons, isopods, tarantulas, and other arthropods on their YouTube channel, also called Arthropod Ambassadors. You can also follow them on Instagram and Facebook and stay up to date with any new content or species that they may have available in the future. So a huge thanks to Arthropod Ambassadors for sponsoring this podcast. And if you want to learn more about them, I'll link the podcast that we did together at the end of this video or down below in the show notes. And our second sponsor today is none other than TarantulaCribs.com. If you're looking for high-end acrylic enclosures for your tarantulas, scorpions, isopods, or pretty much any invertebrate, then you need to head over to TarantulaCribs.com. They recently restocked their website, and they have some new products coming out in the very near future, like larger enclosures. So whether you're looking for an arboreal or terrestrial enclosure, they have a wide variety of sizes for any stage of your invert's life. I use them a lot for my tarantulas and true spiders, and they're my favorite enclosure by far. And if you use the code TCollective10 at checkout, you'll receive 10% off your entire order. Currently, they're only available to residents of the United States, but they are working on international shipping, so hopefully that'll be available soon. So thank you so much, Tarantula Cribs, for supporting this podcast and for all the sponsors today. You guys are awesome and you're integral in keeping this podcast up and running. So thank you so much for your support. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our special guests. They are from Cleveland, Ohio. They run a reptile rescue out there. Uh, you're probably familiar with them if you, you've seen them at NARBC or uh, many other reptile expos around the country. Uh, so welcome, Keith, from Herps Alive. Hello, Keith. How are you today? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great to be with you. Hey, thank you for coming. It's uh, it's already kind coming. of been a crazy morning for me, but <laughs> we're doing what we can. So how are things up in Cleveland? Yeah, well, so Friday's supposed to be my day off. So, so far we've done four Zoom calls. We're doing this podcast. Then I've got to go meet an animal control officer at the rescue with an iguana that was found stuck in a fence. Uh, for those iguanas are not native to Cleveland, Ohio. Typical day for us uh, wow. here when we're running a rescue. Yeah, an iguana yeah. stuck in a fence. <laughs> So I've been I've been following you on Facebook for a while. Uh, I think I initially met you all. It was probably like two years ago or so at uh, the Tinley Park NARBC. Right. Um, mm-hmm. we we're just kind of walking around shooting a video. My wife uh, ended up, I think, talking to a couple of people uh, at your organization even more than I did. I was filming, and she was like, "Was like, hey, we we got to keep moving." <laughs> she was there talking like twenty minutes or something. They were very uh, very friendly, uh, very educational, uh, and I was just wondering if maybe you could. Tell everybody that's listening you know, that may not be familiar with Herbs Alive uh, exactly what your organization is and what you all are doing out there. Sure. So Herbs Alive started as my educational program. I've been doing educational reptile programs in schools 
uh, libraries, things of that nature for over 40 years now. And I've always taken in unwanted animals. People would come up to you after the after the program and say, hey, we have a leopard gecko we can't keep anymore. We have a boa constrictor we can't keep. Will you take it? I would always take those animals. And when the economy got bad in 2008, 2009, it really got to a point where it was unsustainable. And so we began looking into forming a nonprofit to do reptile rescue. Uh, it took us a couple of years to get all the paperwork concluded and dealing with attorneys and accountants, that can happen sometimes. But finally, in 2013, we spun off the Herb Salai Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit reptile rescue organization from the what my accountant likes to call the alleged for-profit program. And um, we formed the nonprofit. Originally, we were going to be a foster-based organization where volunteers would house the animals and we would go to expos and adopt them out. And then in the fall of 2013, we got called in by one of the local police departments to do the seizure of over 100 reptiles in an apartment, including cobras and rattlesnakes. And suddenly we went from having 100 rescued animals to 200 rescued animals. The idea of being foster-based kind of went right out the window, and we began looking for a location. It took us about a year to find a building, well, it's about six months to find a building, another six months to renovate it. And finally, on Christmas Eve of 2014, the Herb Salai Foundation public facility opened for the first time. Was it difficult trying to find a location, like uh, somebody that would rent to you their property to keep venomous snakes and reptiles? That, and, and well, well, we, yeah, we don't keep venomous uh, long term. All right. As an all volunteer organization with a lot of high school age and college age volunteers who don't have experience handling venomous. When we get venomous in, I will keep them in my personal facility. Uh, that way, if there is an accident, I'm going to take the blame for it instead of some 16-year-old volunteer. Um, we didn't have that much of a problem. We had more of a problem governmentally than we did with property owners. Property owners, vacant properties, are willing to to, to rent. And um, I initially worked with the suburb that I currently live in, Cleveland Heights, and they had a clause in their uh, law stating that there couldn't be public contact with the animals. Well, it makes it pretty hard to adopt an animal out to somebody if you say it's an animal, but you're not allowed to hold them in my building. So that kind of went. Plus, we wanted to do educational programs at the facility as well. Uh, we looked at some, uh, some spaces in South Euclid, which is a suburb we eventually ended up with. That's a suburb I actually grew up in. And South Euclid was very welcoming to us, more so than any of the other areas. And the building that we found was... Uh, not in the best of shapes. So it's not a typical big box store type thing. It's a freestanding building that needed a lot of work. And I think the combination of the fact that that building had been vacant for quite a while, along with the fact that um, uh, we were working with a city where I was somewhat known, I think uh, made it a little bit easier for us. But there were a lot of hoops to jump through. Absolutely. Yeah. And just here uh, in the town that I am, I looked briefly into trying to find like a studio that I could keep all of like my camera equipment and everything in and all the tarantulas that I could film at that wasn't actually in my house. Uh, just because it can be kind of distracting trying to work from home sometimes, especially with a 12 year old. <laughs> uh, and just, I mean, I didn't like go really hardcore looking, but just a few places that I was looking like, Oh, this might be a, uh, as soon as I told him I had, you know, over a hundred tarantulas I'd be moving in. They were like, yeah, I don't think that's a good fit. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> that's hard for me. I, I could imagine, you know, for reptiles it, that it might be pretty difficult. Um, but you guys, yeah, it, it can be. And like I said, there were a lot of things we had to deal with. Obviously, some insurance issues we had to deal with, which uh, weren't as big a problem, weren't as big an obstacle as I thought they would be. Uh, the biggest problem was just that it's a concept that, to the best of our knowledge, to the best of any knowledge we've ever talked to, has never been tried. There's lots of very good 501c3 
charitable rescue organizations out there. But none of them yeah. work under a humane society model where they have public hours. We're open to the public five days a week with set hours. So if you're thinking about maybe we're interested in adopting an animal, you don't have to call and make an appointment. Uh, you can, you know that from 12 to 6 on Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, Sundays, we're going to be open and you can come in and around. Because of the fact that it was an untried uh, model, yeah. And again, even though we're charity, we're a nonprofit, we still have to run ourselves like a business. I think that's one of the things that a lot of rescuers tend to forget sometimes. Uh, they want to rescue animal under full and I appreciate that. But oftentimes they don't understand the resources that are required. And so for us, even though we are a rescue, we do try to run things as a business. Uh, it's a somewhat unique model, but it's still a business nonetheless. What is the area that you all say? I know you're in Cleveland, but I've... Just from following you on Facebook, you guys have traveled quite some pretty far distances to rescue some reptiles. Pretty much east of the Mississippi River. Um, We've done rescues in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, pretty much all the surrounding states uh, because there just aren't rescues available. Uh, In Pennsylvania, to my knowledge, there are three nonprofit rescues available. We work closely with two of those. There's only a couple up in New York, none in the western half of the state. Um, Indiana, to my knowledge, doesn't have any 501c3 reptile rescue. So when any of the humane organizations there or the big animal sanctuaries like Black Pine, which is a god sanctuary, they'll get reptile calls. Oftentimes, they'll refer those to us. And what exactly, like, how does that work? How does that process work? Like, uh, somebody, somebody, like, say they have, like, a, a boa or something like that, you know, ball python. And they can't take care of it anymore. They just bring it to their Mm -hmm. local animal shelter and then they contact you or uh, is it, do the police get involved? Like, like where do these reptiles come from? How about, uh, yes, Um, there's, there's a lot of different situations. The vast majority of what we get are what we call voluntary surrenders. These are surrenders where the owner realizes that for one reason or another, they can no longer care for their animal. Maybe they're moving, maybe they've lost their job, whatever the situation is. And they'll bring those animals into us. Uh, to deal with the process uh, in person, face-to-face. We do deal with a lot of animal controls. As I mentioned, we're working with an animal control organization later today to pick up an iguana. We do training with the animal control officers in the area on some of these larger animals as well. The local humane organizations, um, the county humane societies, the local um, animal protective leagues, and so on that we work with, because they're really more set up for dogs and cats. So they're generally the humane officers. They're usually the ones who are doing humane investigations into cruelty or abuse cases. But then when those animals come in, they're not really set up to keep them. So we'll take those animals in and on a, what's called a legal hold, waiting for mm-hmm. court cases to be uh, developed. And then uh, other situations, you know, we'll get uh, my tenant moved and left to fill in the blank, left the bearded dragon, left the boa constrictor, left the ball python. And that happens, unfortunately, far more than, than you would think. And then lastly, we do get the, uh, hey, hey, this is the local police department. There's a boa constrictor crawling through somebody's front yard because people either irresponsibly release them or they escape. And uh, so it's a little bit of everything. One of the interesting things you never know from day to day, there's no such thing as a normal day for us. I would imagine. So you, you've said that like people move out of their apartment or their house and just leave exotic pets behind? Yep. Oh, yeah. Wow. We've had, I mean, the, the first one we got was actually before we opened. And uh, it was a couple of ball pythons in an apartment. And uh, one of them was a moha, was a lesser, I'm sorry. So it's a morph. So it's not just a normal you know, ball python. Normal ball pythons are a dime a dozen these days. 
But mm-hmm. this was a situation where the person moved out. We got a call from the property manager out in Pennsylvania, returning from doing an educational program at a university. And I said, look, I can come out first thing in the morning, but I can't get them you know, four hours away from you. I said, fine, our maintenance guy will be there. I drove out. Four maintenance guys, a snake keeper. So he yeah. saw the snakes when he got there that day, the day before, saw their heat pads unplugged, plugged the heat pads in, gave them a bowl of water. Uh, and then we were able to take them, but we had a normal and we had a lesser ball python that this individual had left around, left, whatever the reason was. Maybe they tried to sell them. Maybe they just, you know, had to leave in a hurry. We don't know. But we've had animals left loose. Uh, we went out to one apartment where the uh, there was two bearded dragons running around the dining room. And there was yeah. a boa constrictor still in the cage. And so, yeah, so uh, unfortunately we do have, as with any animal, you get irresponsible owners. And um, I think it gets highlighted when it's a reptile. You know, if you see a dog running loose along the road, oh, that dog might have been turned loose by its owner, and that's unfortunate, but it's not ideal. But when it's a boa constrictor running alongside the road, that's leading the six o'clock news. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, when and when someone does something like that, are there uh, like criminal criminal charges? Are you do you guys get get involved in that, or are you just there to to rescue and, and get them out? Uh, and getting them to safety. So we 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 do adopt animals. Our, our job is to rescue them, get them healthy if they're injured or if they're sick. We have three veterinarians. We're an all volunteer organization, so we have three veterinarians currently who volunteer with us. With a fourth who comes in periodically, who's not on a regular schedule, and a fifth who may be starting soon. We're working on her. She hasn't made the commitment yet, but we're working on it. <laughs> uh, we also have a vet, we have several vet techs as well. So. Basically, every day we're open, we have a trained veterinary professional, whether it's a veterinary technician or a veterinarian, who are there to do uh, whatever needs to be done. Many times, these are vets who are not exotic vets, and this is their way of learning and expanding their education. A couple of the more notable exotic vets in Northeast Ohio also volunteer with us as well. And do the majority of the uh, reptiles and stuff that you all take in, are they healthy or are, do, they, do they need immediate veterinarian attention? Now, we're seeing an increase in animals that need immediate veterinary care lately. I think uh, the COVID and, and the things with the economy and people were not working, it's finally starting to take hold. I think the other problem is so many veterinary uh, clinics are backed up right now. Uh, you yeah. six-week wait in many cases. And so even though we have a lot of very good exotic vets here in Northeast Ohio, you just can't get these animals in. And in some cases, it is because people can't afford them. So we're getting more and more animals in that have uh, high veterinary needs, you know, uh, bearded dragons with MBD, um, respiratory infections and snakes we see a great deal of, those kinds of things. And then, of course, we're seeing a lot of leopard geckos who have all kinds of issues of late. I think that's just because, unfortunately, I think a lot of leopard gecko folks get their leopard geckos and don't get the full husbandry information that they need from the source that they might be purchasing it from. Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot with tarantulas and and other inverts as well. Uh, what are you, some know, of you the- see that, Jimmy? Not, not not to interrupt. You see that with tarantulas, just like we do. People think, oh, it's a tarantula. Here's how you care for it. Well, the difference between an old world and a new world, or this genera, you know, this genus and that genus, they do require different care. And we have the same thing with reptiles. People look at the uh, the animal protective leagues in the Humane Society. You know, the fact is. Caring for a chihuahua, caring for a Great Dane, other than the amount of space, the amount of food, the basic care is the same. Caring for a Siamese cat, caring for a Himalayan, Himalayan needs a little more grooming, but the basic care is going to be identical. 
But when you're talking about the difference between uh, a blue baboon and a, a red knee, you know, the, the environment has to be different. The husbandry has to be different. We see the same thing, difference between a rubber boa and a red-tailed boa, as an example. Do you guys, uh, do you ever take in any tarantulas or inverts at all? or is it Yeah, we, 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 we do inverts. We, it tend, they tend to be in large numbers. So we don't get, you know, whereas we'll get one leopard gecko here and a bearded dragon there from somebody. When somebody turned in tarantulas, it's often a collection. It'll be 20 or 30. We took in uh, about three weeks ago a group of 15 of them. Um, there were blue baboons, there were rear horned baboons. Again, I'm not a tarantula expert here, Richard, so I'm tr trying to, to draw on my memory. There's a couple of Southern black widows in the collection. Um, and all of those have been rehomed re -home with one exception. So we do have, although it's a small core group, we do have an avid group of tarantula keepers here in, in Northeast Ohio, actually even Northwest Ohio. We have one couple, uh, rise halfway across the state when we have tarantulas available, uh, to adopt from us. So, um, yeah, we do get, we do get inverts in. It's not our area, but we have enough knowledge. One of our volunteers is a keeper and she's got about, I think, eight or 10 right now and uh is is a very very immaculate keeper so she helps us with our husbandry and uh that's obviously helpful again when you're dealing with 50 or 60 species of animals we can't be experts on all of them as rescuers so we have to rely yeah. on whatever help we can get and and how many volunteers does it take to run an organization like yours stay with us we'll be right back what's all around you almost everywhere you look and makes your life better birds Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. We actually have about 100 volunteers, but I'd say the core of volunteers is about 30 to 35. We like to have mm -hmm. three to four people at the building at, at all times and basically two shifts a day, five days a week. So you're talking 30 right there. And then we have some folks who just do outreach work who only go to the expos. We have other people who do graphic work for us. Um, we have other people who do work specialty thing. We have a volunteer bookkeeper who just started working with us so she can keep me on the straight and narrow when I'm doing all the accounting work. Um, <laughs> so all those, all those volunteer services help. And then we have a whole nother group that's really, uh, you follow us on Facebook, we've seen in this last week and a half, uh, our volunteer transporters, people who can't make solid commitment to doing time, they're willing to drive a couple hours to pick up a sick animal or an animal that needs to be surrendered. We have right now, a network that could cover transport pretty much throughout the entire state of Ohio, half of Indiana, the lower half of Michigan, and Western Pennsylvania and New York. So if I get a call from somebody, you know, one of the classic stories, we got a panic call from a lady in Erie, Pennsylvania. She had an mm -hmm. egg-bound veiled chameleon, uh, had just lost her job, couldn't afford a vet. She's just freaking out because she doesn't want her chameleon to die. I put up on her Facebook page, hey, anybody in Erie, Pennsylvania who can pick up an egg-bound chameleon, literally within two minutes, we got a message from one of our adopters. Her husband is a long-haul trucker who was in Buffalo. Well, okay. you've got to come right through Erie to get to Cleveland from Buffalo. So he literally stocked up this chameleon, brought her to their house. Then the next day, they brought the chameleon to us. Um, 
And then our veterinarian spayed her, removed the eggs. Ellie is now uh, fostering with one of our volunteers, and that's been a, almost a year and a half now. So she's doing great. We have other people who, like I say, they'll drive. Uh, we had one the other day where a woman down in central Ohio, due to health reasons, had to surrender a large number of crested geckos and bearded dragons. And we had a transporter say, hey, I'm off work this week. I can meet you halfway. I can't bring them all the way to Cleveland. That would have been a six-hour trip. But we were able to arrange to meet them halfway. So we did three hours. They did three hours. And we were able to get those animals into the rescue. They were all very healthy animals. The pet owner had done a great job with her animals, but because of her failing health, didn't feel continued to. So mm. we have uh, we have a veterinarian down in Columbus who transports for us all the time because her mom is one of our volunteers. She actually did part of her internship with us when she was still in, in vet school. So uh, she comes up periodically and helps helps out in the quarantine area, but also will foster animals in the Columbus area, which is about two and a half hours. That way we're not constantly running down there. So yeah. that's one of our goals is to eventually build that transport network to become more efficient so that when some of us contact us with an emergency, we can get somebody there. Uh, in a relatively short period of time. We're working on one right now. It's actually going to be two or possibly three legs where one person is going to pick up the animals, transfer them about 45 minutes to a new transporter, who's going to then bring them up to the rescue. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of coordination that's involved in that. And that's one of the things that we're seeing more and more need for. Again, because there's just not, you know, if you have a dog you need to surrender, there's a humane society nearby in your county. You can get them there in 15, 20 minutes with yeah. reptiles. That's just not. And if somebody wanted to get involved, like they wanted to become a volunteer and help you guys out, even if it's just in transporting, how, how do they go about that? How do they, um, you know, volunteer they, their time? Sure. Sure. I'm sorry not to interrupt. They can reach out to us on our Facebook page. Of course, send us a message. Let us know if they want to volunteer. Our volunteer commitment is really pretty small. We ask people to commit to just one shift a month. So a three hour commitment per month. Uh, your first couple of shifts, you'll actually train, you'll chat with an experienced volunteer. And volunteers will do everything from feeding and watering to cleaning cages, to mopping the floor and cutting the lawn. So it's a little bit of everything. As far as transporters, same thing. They can just reach out to us uh, either via Facebook or via email, herpsalive at earthlink.net. That's herpsalive at earthlink.net. And let us mm -hmm. know they want to volunteer. We can send the package out. They can review it. Then we'll bring them in for an orientation and a short interview. Actually, the other way around. They do the interview first. Then we do the orientation. <laughs> um, and uh, there's a lot going on. And, and, and one of the big things for the volunteers, when I'm there every day pretty much, but when the volunteers are in once a week or every couple of weeks, we take in about adopt out over 500. So if you do the math on that, it's about 15 animals a week coming in. And so... The building changes very much from if you're a Wednesday volunteer, oh, it's there. This past Wednesday is going to be very different from what's here this next Wednesday. 15 new animals to 10 animals will be out. So things change pretty quickly, and you've got to pay attention to all of that. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and on the other side of that, how do people go about adopting uh, these reptiles? Like, Is there a process or you know, application or anything like that? Or what's that, what's that look like? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our process has actually kind of evolved over the years to more accurately mirror what a lot of the humane organizations do. It's a two-step process. There's a written application as well as an in-person interaction and interview. And that can happen in either order. Uh, if somebody wants a specific animal, let's say somebody's interested in adopting a Western hognose snake. We don't get very many of those, but there's a lot of demand. So they may fill out an application. We'll go over the application with them, make sure that everything is, is in order. And if we approve that application, we'll then put them in line so that when a Western hog nose becomes available, we'll contact them. The other way that it can work is they may come into the rescue and see an animal that they really, really like. 
So they do the interview and the interaction first and say, yeah, I'd really like to adopt this animal. Then they do the application. Um, other times they'll come in looking for a particular animal that we do have. We get lots of leopard geckos. We've taken in over 430 bearded dragons since we opened. Um, so if they're looking for an animal like that, they can come in and choose from five or six bearded dragons that we might have available and pick the one that matches their needs best and they can do their paperwork. On larger animals, when we're talking about things like tegus, monitors, iguanas, we do require proof of caging, so they need to show us a picture of their enclosure. With a leopard gecko, a 15-gallon aquarium, 20-gallon aquarium, we're not quite as concerned with that. So the process is much stricter depending on what the animal is. Uh, the process to adopt a Russian tortoise is going to be a little bit similar, as an example. Now, is, there, uh, is the adoption fee pretty much... Is there an, an adoption fee and does it change based on the size of the animal, what type it is, or is it just kind of like the same across the board? We, we would love to be able to do a flat adoption fee on all animals, but because of the way the market works, we just can't do that. We have to make our, our, our adoption fees, although they're less than market prices, uh, we have to make our adoption fees at a point to discourage flipping. And although we do have a process in place, if somebody wants to scam us, they're going to scam us. I guess that's the best way, no matter how careful we are. And we have actually had several adopters who we have then caught later trying to resell animals. So uh, as, as an example, um, a normal ball python is going to adopt, have adoption fee between $40 and $60. A single gene morph ball python, 75 to 100 The market price is but it's enough that they're not going to be able to adopt that animal and immediately turn it around and make a profit. We've seen, of course, and I don't know how it's been in the tarantula market, but we've seen over the last year because of COVID, it seems like prices on everything is, are going up. Um, snake prices, you know, I'm, I'm a colubri keeper. I'm a corn snake guy. And, you know, adult corn snakes used to be, even if they were multiple uh, genes, you know, they were, no, you're never going to pay more than $150, $200 for an adult corn snake. Now we're seeing $300, $400, $500 animals, the same animals that were $200, $250 a year ago. So prices have gone up. Western hog noses are a perfect example of that. Prices on them has gone, have gone crazy. So we have to ad uh, adapt our uh, adoption fees. And then when you're dealing with imported animals, Russian tortoises being an example, they cut off Russian tortoise imports for a while. Suddenly the price on Russian tortoises went up $100. Well, we had to look at our $100 adoption fee as compared to the 150 you would pay at a pet store or at an expo. And when everybody else was going up to 200 or 225, we went up to 150. We've come back down now because now they're available again. So we've got to kind of uh, keep an eye on the market. I mean, I hate to make it sound like it's money driven. It's not. That's not why we do what we do. But we do have to kind of keep that, that aspect in mind. We're looking for, for quality homes for these animals not to have these animals, you know, turned over quickly for somebody else to make a profit. Yeah. And I think anybody that keeps exotic pets, especially reptiles, knows how expensive that can be. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I can, I can only imagine what your all's books look like. Because, it, I mean, I, I mean, with oh, it's, food and stuff like that, like, it's got to get pretty, pretty pricey. Our, our electric bill average is $1,100 a month. Oh, wow. So, what about, uh, once we buy our building, which, which we're hoping to do, we're going to put up solar panels and hopefully that'll save us some money and make us a little bit more environmentally sound. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that, about trying to, to buy the building? Sure. So we rent our building right now and, and our landlord has consistently increased our, our rent uh, as we've signed each new lease. We didn't want to sign a long lease at first because frankly, we didn't know if it was going to work. And we've been very fortunate to support from the community, both the reptile community and the physical community, South Euclid and the surrounding cities has been remarkable. And so we decided we, we've, we in doing some research, we found 
that buying our building would actually save us about $1,000 a month um, because the mortgage payment would be less than what we're paying in rent. So we decided yeah. we were going to launch a capital campaign and start raising some money for that. And of course, when was our launch day? March 15th of 2020. Ouch. <laughs> right when the entire country was closing down due to COVID. And yeah. uh, that was the announced launch of our capital campaign. And actually, one of our one of our volunteers did a great graphic. Rich, are you familiar with the movie Airplane? Yes. Okay. So, uh, you know, the Lloyd Bridges character. Oh, I guess I picked a bad day to stop sniffing Lou. I guess I picked a stop. So she did a graphic with, with Lloyd Bridges in front of our building saying, I guess I picked a bad day to start a capital campaign. And we promoted <laughs> that all over the place. And it got a lot of, uh, a lot of internet play and so on. But um, so we, we launched it kind of not full, full bore because everything was locked down. And we've been very fortunate that we've been able to raise pretty much each month between three dollars and $5,000. Our goal to raise $100,000 for the down payment on the building, which would then also allow us to do some construction and some expansion. We're currently sitting at 85000 So we're getting very close. And we're hopeful that by the end of the year, we're going to make it, be able to make an offer, buy the building in the adjoining lot, and then do some expansion. Uh, we need more space. There's no question about that. With the number of animals, we never thought when we first opened that we would be taking in the number of animals that we would. And uh, whereas clearly you can house a whole bunch of ball pythons in a small area, you can house a lot of leopard geckos in a small area. That's not the case with six foot green iguanas or four foot Argentine tegus. Uh, they need a little bit more room and we need to expand that. So we're working very hard. We've gotten some support. Um, I got to give a shout out. I hope this doesn't step on toes of any of your sponsors, but Doobie Roaches just gave us a 25, DoobieRoaches.com, a $2,500 grant uh, as a result of a Facebook promotion. And so obviously that's a big chunk towards what we're trying to do. We've received a lot of support in the past also uh, from a number of the manufacturers. Zilla has supported us quite a bit, as has Pangea. So we have a lot of the folks in the industry supporting us. And if any of you do want to send it, just send us the address. <laughs> Um, like I say, we're hopeful that we'll own the building by the end of the year. We have a 4,000 square foot expansion, which would double our space plan. And uh, that would allow us to do some built-in caging with things like floor drains, which would just allow cleaning to be you know, a lot better and a lot easier. And, and just make sure we get the information out there. What's, what's the best way to donate to you all if people want to support? All right. So we, have, we do have a PayPal. Purpose Alive at Earthlink.net is our PayPal. Uh, they can send a check right to, the, right to the rescue. And that information is on our Facebook page or on our, on our website. Um, and if you just search Herbs Alive, it'll, it'll pop up for you. Um, and of course, you can, like I say, you can mail a check. If you're in area, you can come in and drop a payment off if you choose to. But like I say, PayPal is, is a pretty easy for folks to do it. Unfortunately, we're not yet set up for credit cards directly. But if your card's linked to your PayPal account, you can do it that way. Um, so those are the two best ways. You send mail check or via PayPal. Gotcha. Do you all have any kind of like um, like subscription support set up? Like where uh, it just, you know, say I want to like, uh, you know, donate $20 a month. Is there anything like that set up where it just kind of automatically? Yes, we're working on it. It's one of the things we're working on. We hope to have, we're in the process of launching a new website. With yeah. the new website, you'll be able to go to the website directly and donate. And then there will be sustaining um, donations. Right now, we do have a number of sustainers. Uh, who just either send a check every month or they have automatic bill pay. So their automatic bill pay system sends us the check every month. So we do have a few of those right now, but we do, that's one of our big goals. Uh, in addition to buying the building, of course, is to get this new website launched by the end of the year and uh, have that capability available as well. Very cool. Yeah. I, I, Cause I, I know that I think it's a, every year since I met you all, 
for my birthday when Facebook does that, uh, you know, have people donate, you know, to share, you know, a nonprofit charitable cause. I always choose you guys. Uh, I mean, it probably doesn't raise more than a few hundred dollars, but you know, it, it, I always like, I, I guess it just kind of slips my mind sometimes, you know, it's like, Oh, I want to support yeah, but, this charity, but you know, then it's like, Oh, I, I forget. I get so caught up in life and stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I finally just sustained our local public broadcasting network last year for the first time. I was home so much during COVID and I found myself using NPR a lot more. I said, you know what? Time to start sending them something. So we automated automatically. But fortunately, again, time, there's only 24 hours in the day and we're so busy taking care of the animals and just doing the day-to-day operations of the rescue. But a lot of that other stuff, that ancillary stuff, the website uh, has fallen by the wayside. Something so when you talk about fundraising, and again, not to get too deep into the weeds on, on how nonprofits fundraise, because you could do a whole show totally unrelated to animals about that. But if you've ever donated to your local humane society, you get an email from them every week couple times a month, you get a newsletter, you get this appeal. Oh, now all donations in the next 36 hours will be tripled thanks to the generosity of our trustees or whatever. We have not yeah. even been able to work, work out something like that. We do have the email list. We just haven't had to put that together where we can put together a, a constant contact type email. It's also on the list of things we want to do as we continue to grow. Gotcha. I mean, is that something where you would be looking for volunteer help? Like somebody that knows a lot about, you know, building websites or email campaigns, fundraising, stuff like that? Uh, is yes. That, yeah, you could definitely use some help like that. Yeah, we can always use help. I mean, we have a few people locally who do that, um, but we just haven't. You know, the problem becomes when you get somebody who has expertise, uh, let's say a professional graphic artist. As a volunteer, mm-hmm. they'll plug you in when they can, but then if they get busy, you're going to fall by the wayside because you're the free one. And I'm not complaining. We appreciate all the help we can get. Um, yeah. But you, you run into sometimes folks just get busy with their paid job, and I totally understand that. So we haven't been able to finish some of the projects. We have, a, we have an awful lot of half-finished projects, Richard. And, <laughs> and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get them done as we get our volunteers in, in place and as more and more people start coming out with, with hopefully, uh, hopefully this Delta variant won't be a big deal, but with COVID kind of backing down a little bit. Now, uh, you have like a list on Facebook or somewhere like that where you have uh, like all of the animals that you have available for adoption, or is it you just have to like go in person or call? We do list our animals. We have a, a, a photo album on our Facebook page called uh, Adoptable Animals. Pretty creative. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and we try to get pictures of the adoptable animals up on that page. Uh, we run about a week behind. We have two volunteers to do photos. Uh, we finally, you know, just you talk about little things for just got internet in the building about three months ago. So now we can actually take the pictures right there and put them up immediately as opposed to having to take them back, edit them on a computer in an office remotely, and then post them. So we can get things done a little bit more quickly now. Uh, but again, sometimes we get busy. So we tell everybody we tend to run a week behind. And then the other thing is we have uh, right now 30 yellow belly sliders available. We're not going to post pictures of 30 different yellow bellies. Um, we're not going to post pictures of 10 different snapping turtles. We'll post size at that. Yeah. Um, when you get into animals like crested geckos or leopard geckos, there because they tend to look different, you know, get different morphs, whatever, we will post pictures of each one. So not every single animal gets posted on that page, but it's a very representative listing of what we have available. And just this, out of my own curiosity, I've always kind of wondered this, but what's the most common uh, rescue that you guys take in? Is it like leopard geckos or iguanas or? Red-eared sliders. 
Oh, geez. We get more red sliders than anything else. And there's all kinds of different reasons for that, ranging from the illegal sale of undersized turtles to the fact that in Ohio, they're uh, an invasive species. Uh, I could go on and on with dealing with different laws with red ears in the state of Ohio that make it very, very difficult. Uh, after red ears, we get bearded dragons. We have the second most, you say popular, but the second most. Third is very close between ball pythons and leopard geckos. Yeah, when I was living down in Florida, it seemed every pet shop had you know, the little tiny red ear sliders, uh, you know, they're probably no bigger than a silver dollar for sale for like mm -hmm. five or 10 bucks or something like that. And they were cute and normal. And I even bought one back. I mean, this is, you know, 20 some years ago. So I was like, oh, cute little turtle. I think we got two of them and, and set mm -hmm. them up. And those things just kept growing. Like it got went from like a 10 gallon tank all the way up to like a hundred gallon tank within a few years, it seemed. Mm -hmm. Right. But they, and that's they technically the sale. Well, the, technically the sale of those baby turtles is illegal. It's a federal, federal law and it's a health law based on a salmonella outbreak back in the seventies. However, mm -hmm. the federal law has a number of exemptions, uh, including educational, scientific research or display purposes. So, in the retail pet trade, when the law first went into effect in the 70s, the way around it was to have you sign off and say, well, I'm buying this animal for educational purposes because owning a pet is educational. You can make that argument. So then the Food and Drug Administration changed the wording a little bit. They still haven't defined some of the others. So in Cuyahoga County, the county that we're in, they actually have a, a, a phrase predating or, or preceding the exemption saying, no member of the public shall purchase any turtle on or so instead of having the exception, member of the unless you can prove that you're a teacher or a research scientist or something like that, you can't purchase them. So we still have people selling them illegally, and unfortunately, because it's a health department regulation, they just don't have the enforcement mechanism in place. Um, and we we know a number of the expos sell baby turtles, of course, and most of the counties don't have that exception, and they can sell them because of that exemption. And, and baby turtles are cute. There's no doubt about it. They can also be salmonella factories if you don't care for them properly. And the number of people who buy those baby turtles individually find out that they need that big aquarium and they need a filter and they can't eat just, you know, dried food that they need a little bit of supplementation. Suddenly you're talking about hundreds of dollars in setup for the filter, the UVB light, the basking lamp and everything else. And we get baby turtles literally just left on pet store shelves. People buy them one place um, illegally. And they find out what's involved, and they'll just dump them. I'll get a call from a chop. Hey, somebody just dropped off a red-eared slider and a little little bull. Can you come and get them? You know, a little baby. Happens all the time. Yeah, I, uh, we, I, had, I was down in Florida where I had those, and those things, you know, they just kept growing, kept getting, you know, it seems like whatever tank we put them in, they would grow until they fit that that tank, and yeah. then I'd upgrade them again. Uh-huh, absolutely. And, uh, but then, like, uh, you know, that, that relationship fell apart, and, we, we you know, we broke up, and she, I guess she got the turtles. Uh -huh. And I was like, I mean, not a divorce, but in the breakup. And, and I was like, <laughs> I was kind of like, what part of me is like, oh man, I really like those turtles. But the other part's like, she can have them because they were a lot more work. Yeah, a lot of work, a lot of work. We have, yeah. we have two volunteers who do nothing but turtle maintenance. And, yeah. you know, that's six hours a week plus two other volunteers who spend probably another six hours a week. We currently have over a thousand gallons of aquatic turtles. So wow. when you come into the rescue, you'll see, when, first when you come in, you'll see a 500-gallon display on the right. You'll see a 250-gallon display on the left. And then as you come in, you'll see other aquariums. We have 12, we have 14 tubs in our garage, ranging from 100 gallons to 300 gallons, uh, all full with, with red ear sliders, yellow belly sliders. We've been fortunate. We, we're pretty good at getting map turtles and the other species adopted out. 
yellow bellies, we just get so many of them. Red ears, because some of the state laws in Ohio stricter, it's a much more difficult situation. Yeah, I always assume that, you know, just based on what they sell at the large chain pet stores, like, you know, uh, bearded dragons, leopard geckos, that those would probably be the most common that, that people were surrendering or, you know, not able to take care of and, and you know, having them taken away from or something. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of, I think it's when I, when I met you guys up at the Tinley Park, they, they had one snake on display that was extremely rare. It was like some kind of big, beautiful albino boa. And, you know, they were just, they, they were talking about how uh, sometimes very expensive or, you know, very exotic pets make their way into the rescue. Is that, I mean, is that is that true? Does, are there a lot of species that, you know, are very difficult to eat or very expensive to purchase that end up getting surrendered? We are. We're seeing more and more of that. I mean, I still remember the first time that a blue-eyed Lucy ball python came into the rescue. And um, now, not the blue-eyed Lucys are that common, but we get multi-gene morphs all the time. And I think there's there's a couple of factors to that. Number one, specifically relating to ball pythons and some of the morphs, uh, that market is just such a crazy market. It, it reminds me of um, tulip bulbs in Holland back in the 1700s um, <laughs> because because people are going so crazy. Um, but I think the other thing is, and especially I think COVID may have had something to do with this, we've developed a pretty trustworthy reputation within the community. And I think people, rather than having to put, if, if, if you own several or you're a firing breeder and you ended up getting out, you can find other breeders. You probably have a network available. But if you have just one and you bought something, I walked into a local pet store the other day. They have a, a pied banana ball python, a juvenile. And the retail price on it is, I think, $849. So if somebody falls in love with that animal and just got their stimulus check, doesn't really know what they're doing. Now they've got to get rid of it for whatever reason. They've lost their job. They can't afford to feed it. Maybe they got it for their son or daughter leaving for college. We have typically more intakes in August than in any other month because so many students are leaving for college. And suddenly that snake that they got at age 10 or that bearded dragon that they got when they were 12, mom and dad decide they don't want to care for it. The younger sibling who said they would care for it end up not caring for it. We end up with it. So I think people don't want to have to deal with going to the Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. Well, I'm sorry, you can't sell animals on Facebook Marketplace. But um, yeah. of course you can't. <laughs> but um, but you know, I think people don't want to have to deal with the Craigslist stuff uh, and I think so that they trust us to find a good home for the husband and the animal that they had initially, but rather the true desire to make sure that that animal gets a good home down the road and that we'll screen appropriately to find a good owner for it. I see. Yeah, there was, a, I, I went, uh, met somebody on Craigslist to buy uh, Exoterra Enclosure. And they lived on the other side of town and, you know, we, we nego negotiated back and forth about the deal, uh, you know, about the price for the enclosure. And we finally agreed on it. I go and I show up and it's not just the enclosure. You know, there was a light and, you know, all the stuff that goes inside. And uh, the person I was buying it off of was like, um, did you want the leopard gecko that's in there as well? And I was like, you didn't say anything about there being a leopard gecko. Yeah. In there. <laughs> I needed the enclosure for a tarantula. She's like, oh, that's okay. I'll just let it out back. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll yeah. take the leopard gecko. No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, yeah, there, there have been some, some crazy stories with that where people have bought, you know, enclosure gets purchased and the, the animal comes with it. They don't really want the animal. We end up with the animal. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think the majority of people, you know, this is where you get into this gray area as a rescuer. Sometimes you get very frustrated with what you see with the condition of animals. But the fact is the vast majority of owners are responsible and want to do what's best for their animal. And that's true with reptiles. It's true with dogs. It's true with cats. You're always going to get a percentage of irresponsible owners. And whether that means that 
an animal who's, or an animal who's not cared for properly does happen. It's a fact of life and we've got to deal with it. But the vast majority of people do care sincerely about their animals. Um, you know, the hardest thing for me is when that owner comes in and surrender that animal and they're standing crying, but they can't afford the veterinary costs or they can't afford to care for the animal or they, they've lost their job. They've been on unemployment for six months and they can't afford to buy a new UVB bulb for the animal. And, you know, all you can do is say, hey, look, you've done the best job you can. Don't beat yourself up. It, but it becomes very, very hard. It's, it's one of the hard things that and losing animals, you know, and, and, you know, when we get an animal, no matter how sick that animal is, we want to give that animal a fighting chance. And we consider ourselves a no-kill shelter. Granted, our vets will, based on quality of life, will make a decision to nice an animal occasionally. Um, but we try to avoid that whenever possible. And, uh, you know, that the hardest thing is not being able to save every single one of them. I can imagine. Yeah, I'm like about an hour outside of Pittsburgh. And I remember a few years ago, there was a story in the news. Um, somebody was, you know, in an apartment building or maybe like a townhouse or something like that. And they had all kinds of reptiles, including uh, alligators. And one of the alligators got loose. And, and that's how it all mm -hmm. came. You know, it was like walking around the neighborhood and the police got involved and they tracked it down to this guy's apartment. They enter his premises and there's just all kinds of uh, I think he had rabbits and, and mice and, and rats and alligators and a bunch of snakes and stuff like that. And they ended up taking, if I remember right, they, they ended up removing a lot of those animals. Because some of them, I guess, you know, it was, you just shouldn't have had in that kind of uh, situation, mm -hmm. living situation. So when something like that happens, uh, like an alligator or something that's just like almost, you know, it's just insane that somebody's keeping that in an apartment. Do you guys... Uh, get involved in, I mean, do you, do you take possession of those uh, or we, are there some that are just too big? And you're like, yeah, we can't, we can't deal with that. We, we, we do. I actually am licensed by the state personally um, for what's called dangerous wild animals. I've actually got three alligators living in my basement at my house. Um, wow. in, in Ohio, we get inspected every year. So our enclosures, it's, it's not like they're running around loose. So, you know, for anybody who has to come to the basement and do any work down there, you know, my air conditioning guys or my heat, my furnace guy, it's like, I went to high school with the company and he always sends the new guy to work on my furnace because my <laughs> furnace is about three feet away from my big alligator enclosure. But um, the enclosures have to meet state standards in Ohio. And so they're very, very strict on that. And in fact, because of the way the law works, we didn't apply for the dangerous wild animal permit for the rescue because we didn't, we, the timing just didn't work. Okay. Let's put it that way. Our eventual hope is to transfer my permit to the rescue, move those gator able to take in more by changing the type of permit that we have with the state without getting into a whole lot of, uh, dotting and crossing T's there. But for a long time, we weren't allowed to take in alligators and crocodile or crocodilians because of the way the state law was worded. And there was an incident here in Ohio about three and a half years ago. Uh, we get a call from local police. There's a domestic abuse situation, but there's an alligator and a boa constrictor in the house. Or not an alligator, I'm sorry, a spectacle caiman. Can we come and get them? And I said, well, I can come at the boa, but I can't get the caiman. It's against the law for me to take possession of the caiman. I give them the number for the state, which it has to send one of their representatives up to take the caiman. Well, by the time the state got there, this guy had killed the animal. And it was one of those things where if I can't have it, nobody can have it. And we had a conversation with the state and said, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. We understand the law. We understand how it works. And we were able to come up with a compromise. So now we're able to take in crocodilians short term and then contact the state and then they can come and get them at their convenience. Um, and then, like I say, eventually we hope to change our, our uh, 
our license so that we can keep those crocodilians full time and build a zoo quality enclosure for them. We already actually have the question of buying the building and then financing that that uh, aspect of things from an education standpoint. So there's very little that we won't take in. Um, you know, we've taken in snakes over 15 feet. We take in big iguanas all the time. We take in big tegus and so on. Um, and we do have a couple of our volunteers who have extra caging available. So we do have some fostering situations available. If we get full right now, this iguana that I'm picking up later today, that will fill us on large lizards. Um, having said that, we have a big tegu that's supposed to go out next week. So that'll free another enclosure. So it's a constant movement trying to get animals, making sure that we can provide animals with sufficient housing. Um, mm -hmm. I have a, a nine-foot albino Burmese python, who I think you met at Tinley, probably Athena, who we use for educational programs. As a joke, one day we put her into a ten-gallon aquarium. You know, they can can contract. She'll fit in a ten-gallon aquarium, and we posted a picture to some of the effect of, "Is this a suitable cage for this snake?" And just kind of as an April Fool's joke, and people went crazy over it. And of course, <laughs> we don't really mean that. We. In a perfect world, yeah, we'd be able to give every single one of our tegus an eight foot by four foot enclosure, but some of them have to live in four by fours or four by threes because we just don't have enough space right now to remedy that. We hope to remedy that, but we still make sure that those animals are getting proper care, that they're getting good food, that they're getting clean water, humidity is right, the cages are being clean. So um, when we are full, we tell people, hey, well, we can take your iguana, but you're going to need to wait two weeks. So they can free up cage space. And if it's yeah. not an emergency situation, then that works out fine. If it's an emergency, then I'll bring the animal home. I'll keep it at my house for a while. We have a couple of other volunteers who are also capable of fostering. This kind of segues into uh, the next question I had. Uh, you're called Herps Alive. You talk about all these reptiles you're keeping, uh, but you also mentioned you do take in arachnids. So I've always wondered, do you take in other exotic pets as well, like uh, birds or you know sugar gliders or you know, there's some of the more exotic mammals or birds? Or birds. Yeah, we've had sugar gliders, we've had chinchillas, uh, we've had parakeets, or as we call them, Australian feathered lizards. And um, in, in the case of the parakeets, it was a situation where we went to the house to pick up two leopard geckos and a bearded dragon. And the lady said, I've got these two parakeets I need to get rid of too. Can you take them? And it was clearly a situation where they weren't in a good light living situation. So we took them in. The intent was that we, we work with a, a parrot rescue here in the area. And the intent is we were going to send them down. Two days after we took those parakeets in, they did an intake for 100 parakeets. So they were full. So we ended up with those parakeets at the rescue for about a month. There's also a, a mammal rescue that we work with that will take in the chinchillas and the guinea pigs and so on. So if we're going to a house, especially if it's a situation where a tenant has moved out and the, the landlord just wants those animals gone, we'll take those animals in. We'll care for them um, until we can find a suitable rescue to take them. But basically what we work with on a regular basis, reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates, tarantula, scorpions, some other spiders, and some fish. We don't do a lot of fish. There's a really great fish rescue organization here in Northeast Ohio as well. But again, it's a similar situation. Somebody has a bunch of turtles and a bunch of feeder fish that they never ate. Well, why go to two different places? Yeah, we have facilities where we can keep your giant goldfish for you. It's yeah, not a problem. 97% of what we take is reptiles. Yeah. It blows my mind when you mention, like, I've I've moved out of, especially when I was younger, moved out of an apartment and maybe left a TV or a couch or something like that, some piece of furniture I just didn't have room for, didn't need, was like, hey, maybe the next tenant will want it. Uh, but I couldn't imagine moving out and leaving reptiles or any kind of living pet behind. 
Like they just, I, 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 I couldn't know. either. Yeah. Yeah. I just can't wrap my head around that, but it, it's, it's just, you know, but you, you have to, I mean, that ball Python story I told you, the very first one that I told you about, in addition to the ball, two ball pythons in the house, there was over 75 empty vodka bottles in the house. I don't think she had a collection of vodka bottles. I mean, <laughs> if you walk into my house, you'll find over a hundred empty bourbon bottles. I actually collect bourbon bottles. Okay. Uh, but they're arranged neatly. They're not all just sitting in trash bags. This yeah. house, this apartment, there was 75 vodka bottles in trash bags. And the meanest guy said, you know, well, Clearly, there was something you know weird going on here, which is why she left the animals. I said, yeah, well, she could have sold these animals on Craigslist for a couple of bottles of cheap vodka. So it, it was meant as a joke, and I didn't sincerely mean it. But he's like, yeah, I never thought of that. And it's like, no, no we don't want to go there. But yeah, so yeah. you get people sometimes who are in situations where, like I say, where uh, they have, you know, whether it's dependency issues or whatever else, and they're not, maybe they're not thinking straight, or maybe because they're behind on rent, they got to get out quickly and disappear. And it doesn't occur to them. Um, I, I, like I say, I, I could never imagine it. I personally could not. But it does happen. And, and it happens far too often. Yeah. I, I guess that's a good point. If, if you're dealing with a substance abuse problem, uh, you know, it could be something like maybe you, there was an intervention and they flew you off to rehab or something, you know, or right. uh, you got yeah. arrested. I could see that. You get pulled over for DUI or possession or something like that. And all of a sudden you just don't, you know, you're, you're locked up for the next year or so. And your family may just be like, I, we, I don't know what to do. I'm not touching those, you know, or, or you know. Just, right abandon everything so yeah um so you mentioned like uh what would you say was it dubiaroaches.com and and pangea mm-hmm. and some other businesses uh is, is is there like a need that you have uh as far as like feeders or enclosures or you know supplements or something like that uh you know that you you know you're you're open for other businesses to kind of get involved because i'm sure that as far from a business standpoint that would be a tax deductible uh kind of right. charitable donation right absolutely um Things things we can really use. We can always use heat lamps, ceramic heat emitters, things of that nature, uh, heat pads, heat tapes, uh, thermostats, uh, because those things need to be replaced. They do burn out. They go bad and they need to be replaced. Um, not not as practical for somebody who's remote, but bedding, admin shaving, cypress mulch, things of that nature. Uh, and then cleaning supplies is the other thing. But for somebody who's in the business, I would say, um, the heating, heating stuff, you know, anything that falls into that heating and lighting category, we can always use enclosures, especially in anticipation of this hopeful expansion that's coming up. Right now, we don't have room to put a lot of big enclosures. I've got a couple coming in next week, and we're going to have to store them. We're going to have to actually rent a storage area. But I didn't want to lose the opportunity to get these enclosures because of their size. And then, and then the, the, the other thing would be, th- you know, dr- dry supplies. So we get produce locally, but with the number of turtles we get, you know, a, a bag of Missouri turtle food or a bucket of Reptomen, uh, would we, we go through, f- I think, five or six buckets of Reptomen a month when we don't have Missouri around. When we have Missouri, we go through three or four, fifty or two or three 50-pound bags. Um, so, yeah, we go through a lot of turtle food, and they get their produce. They get leafy greens. They get fish as well. You know, the dried turtle food is something we never have enough of. Yeah, I could imagine. Those things do nothing but eat, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've yeah. had them. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feed them uh, live feeders at all? Like, you know, small goldfish or shrimp or anything like that? Occasionally, but very, very rarely. We'll go to the fish market and when tilapia fillets are on special, we'll buy 20, a 20 pound box of tilapia fillets. 
um, and yeah. cut them up and feed them, you know, the fillet fish. Um, we do like to give them live fish occasionally just because it's an enrichment. It's something they would be doing in the wild, you know, hunting and, and catching those fish. The expense involved. Um, you probably, hey, by the way, if, if there's any goldfish farmers out there, if you want to ship us a box, that'd be great too. Um, but uh, <laughs> we'd probably feed live feeders maybe once a month. Yeah, I can imagine that would that would get very costly. Now, you guys oh, do, we, we like do a, go through a lot of crickets. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, about four, four to 5,000 crickets a week. Wow. Do you guys do any of your own breeding of feeders, like mealworms or crickets or anything like that? Or do you, uh, you, do you we, just... We don't have the time. Yeah. We have, we have a number of our volunteers do dubia roaches and we'll donate their overstock, but we don't have the time to, to do worms. And I'd love to do waxworms, worms if we could. Just like I said, yeah. I don't have space right now for it. Maybe down the road at some point. You know we can, but yeah, right now that's just not feasible. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good uh, point to bring up because uh, I know there's a lot of people in the uh, like invert arachnid hobby that breed their own red runners and dubia roaches, and it mm-hmm. always seems that somebody starts doing that, and those things can be pretty prolific. So <laughs> before you know it, yeah. you've got thousands of them, and you just can't mm-hmm. your tarantulas aren't eating that much. Uh, so people are, like trying to sell them, or I mean, I, there was a guy in my area giving away dubia roaches pretty much. It's like just give me five bucks and I'll give you like a thousand, you know? So it's like, that would be a, a good way for somebody to help out, um, you know, just sending you guys, you know, dubias and, and red runners and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. We, we probably have, yeah, we probably have a dozen, you know, regular dubia breeders who, who donate their, their, their overstock to us. We have one hissing cockroach breeder who donates your overstock of hissing cockroaches, bigger bugs for our Savannah monitors. The other thing that happens is a lot of times people will buy in bulk, not realizing uh, you know, they see the prices online and they say, oh man, it's so much cheaper per animal to buy 10,000 superworms than to buy 1,000. And then they see what a bag of 10,000 superworms is and they say, okay, this is a little bit more than we're going to be able to use. Uh, by the way, the answer when you're a tarantula keeper and you have too many dubia roaches is you buy more tarantulas. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, looking like my basement yeah. pretty quick though. <laughs> Yeah, but but so so we'll have somebody buy ten thousand superworms um, and say, hey, I, I I can't use all these. Can you use five thousand? They'll bag up five thousand and bring them to us. Yeah, I, I'd made that mistake years ago because uh, I was going to the pet shop and buying crickets, and they were charging. I mean, I think there for a while, Petco was charging like oh my twenty twenty five cents a cricket. You know, I needed a couple hundred of them. They can get real expensive. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I I looked online and, and it was like a, a box of crickets, like a thousand crickets or something like that for almost half the cost of what I was paying, you know, for right. a couple hundred at Petco. So I, I did that and then I got them and was like, these, this is way too many crickets. There's no way <laughs> yeah. use these before they end up dying of old age. So I didn't, I yeah. didn't do that. That the post office was really upset with me because some got <laughs> loose and their mail room was infested with crickets. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I won't talk to you guys again. No, that's, that's, you know, you, you want to make friends with the mail, uh, with, with the postal service. I should also give a shout out. I, I left out when I'm talking about companies who support us. Um, the folks at Symptom Black from Soldier Fly Larva, um, they send us, they'll send us periodically 20 or 30,000 black soldier fly larvae at a time. And obviously that reduces the, our reliance on crickets, especially for our smaller lizards, things like leopard geckos and things of that nature, juvenile bearded dragons. So that helps us a great deal too. And uh, they, I'll get, it, it's irregular and I'm sure it has to do with when they're overstocked, but I'll get an email on Clear Blue Sky. Hey, Keith, can we send you a box of soldier fly larvae? It's like, sure. And, you know, the first time they sent them, I'm expecting maybe a couple thousand. And they sent me four 
10,000 containers. So I had 40,000 soldier fly larvae and they actually started breeding on their own. So we were actually able to reproduce them. But yeah, trying to coordinate feeding and so on, you know, it's a difficult thing. One of the things that always cracked, used to crack me up, uh, there was a show on Animal Planet called uh, Dr. K's uh, Exotic Emergency Room. Whenever you would look into their in, into their room, there would be this gorgeous pile of beautiful greens and vegetables and stuff that they were feeding to their animals. It's like, we never get stuff that looks like that. We get donations <laughs> of food and it's all the beat up zucchini, uh, which is fine. This time, the folks in the neighborhood will show up at the rescue and there'll be a plastic bag on the door with a half dozen tomatoes that are split and a few zucchini in it. All those things come in handy. All those things are usable. There's no doubt about that. But it's like, I wish I had a space where I could just put out this beautiful play of vegetables to show people, here's what we feed. And uh, I always thought that that was kind of funny. We got a box, we got a donation. There's a restaurant right in front of us about about a block away. First time we've ever, we've had some conversations with them. They showed up yesterday, said, hey, we've got some stuff we're getting ready to throw out. Can you use it? And it was uh, uh, romaine lettuce, which is something we use a lot of. They, They brought us a whole box of romaine lettuce and a couple of tomatoes and a bag of carrots. So, um, you know, we are getting that support from the neighborhood, which is helpful. And obviously, if anybody has too many bugs, they're easy to ship. I, I wish you guys were a little bit closer because we, uh, one of the things my family did yeah. during COVID is we started a garden in our backyard. You know, we were not really gardeners, but we're like, hey, it's a good time to, we're, we're stuck at home anyways. Let's try this out. And everything's, you know, uh, coming, you know, ripening or whatever now. I mean, we're pulling out zucchinis like the size of my forearm. Like I've never seen zucchinis that large before. It's like, how are we going to eat all this? <laughs> so uh, yeah, it'd, it'd be nice to you know, I had had this extra produce that and it was you know in that area. Mm-hmm. It'd be cool to right. I drop it off for you guys. Now you go to well, a. I'll, I'll give you a call next time I'm driving through Pittsburgh. Okay, that <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> uh, so you guys go to a lot of expos, right? Like uh, or, or I don't even know if that's right or not. I've just I've only seen you at. Uh, we, 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 yeah, look, 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 looking for balance, you know, we, we've, we do the Cleveland Expo every month because obviously that's our hometown. And then there's a couple of regional expos to get into this. There, there's two aspects. Number one is staffing the tables while we're still open. The other thing is taking the adoptable animals out of the rescue when we're open. When we first opened, we were closed on Sundays. So it was great. We could do all the Sunday expos because there was no conflict. But what happens when a family comes in with their eight-year-old looking for that first pet leopard gecko and all the leopard geckos are at the expo an hour and a half away? So we've had to kind of strike a balance with that. So now we do two expos a month. We do Cleveland every month, and then we alternate between the BRM Expo in Fremont and the Northeast Ohio Expo in the Youngstown area. We started doing NARBC the first time we went just to kind of check it all out and um, to kind of meet some of the manufacturers and the, and, the, and people on some of the nonprofit exhibitors, you said, Hey, this is something that would be pretty cool. Um, we've done it a few times. And the, again, it's, it's a question of resources. That's a long weekend. As you know, taking people away from the rescue can be a problem. And then by the time that we, pay for hotels and pay for meals and everything for our staff. We don't always show a profit, I guess you would say. So our plan, hopefully starting in October, is to kind of just go and, you know, shake hands and meet people again. We're not going to be exhibiting, at least for the near future. Now, if you can get our outreach staff built back up, we will. But when we first started, the at least the local and regional expos were critical just for us to get the word out. We don't have a huge advertising budget. In fact, we have no advertising budget at all to speak of. And so to be able to meet the members of the reptile community who may not know that we existed, doing those expos is the best way 
But 15 people are 1,500 people are coming through the door at the Cleveland Expo. We're meeting those people. And then what we started doing is because we do sell donated equipment, um, used and donated equipment, we told people that if they showed their wristband from the show from that expo, they get 10% off. So we have a lot, we have a lot of people who make a day of it. They'll come in from a couple hours away, they'll do the Cleveland Expo, then they'll come to the rescue, check out the animals, they'll buy a few heat lamps or whatever else, uh, you know, just to save some money and, and to help support us. So that's one thing that we've done with with Cleveland. And then uh, the other two expos, like I say, we alternate. If I had a full dedicated staff and we had enough available adoptable animals, our goal in doing the expos is not quite the same as it would be for a typical a typical vendor, though. It's more education and letting people know that we're out there as a resource. Yeah, the NARBC is it's unlike any other expo I've been to. It's, it's a great place to do networking and meet all kinds of, of yeah. interesting people from around the country. Uh, but it's right. also extremely overwhelming and expensive. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's actually yes. this October. Uh, for the the one they're having in Tinley Park, I actually my wife has some family that lives in Tinley Park, and her cousin's getting married. So a bunch of us yeah. from West Virginia are heading out there uh, the same weekend. So I mean, it's kind of nice for me because I wasn't sure I was going to be able to go or, or not this year. But it's yeah, like, well, I'm going to be there anyways for a wedding. So I, I when you know I'm going to sneak in for a couple hours, uh, you know, Saturday right. or Sunday. But they're upset at reptile keepers because the hotel prices are so insane right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why is everything so expensive? Right. And like, well, the NARBC brings in a lot of people. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And we always stay 15 minutes outside of town. You know, we find a red roof so we can get our animals in and out and, you know, we get to get our rooms for half what everybody else pays. This year, I'm hoping to go on Sunday. I've actually got an educational program on Saturday, only about two and a half, three hours away. So I'm hoping that I'll do the Saturday program drive in and at least be able to show up on Sunday because again, not having seen a lot of those folks in a long time, you know, the folks from Zilla uh, and of course, Ryan and Erica have their new project now, VivTech and uh, the folks at Josh's Frogs take good care of us at that show as well. Uh, You know, they always have a lot of leftover bugs and it's just as easy for them to donate them to us as it is for them to, sh- to ship them back. So they've always taken very, very good care of us. So we appreciate that. You know, just to be able to, you know, shake hands with some of those people live and in person after having not been there for a couple of years uh, is going to be important for us to be there, I think. But like I say, for the time being, we're not going to be exhibiting. Uh, we would like to go back. Uh, they treat us very well uh, as a nonprofit. And I've got nothing but good things to say about Tinley. But like I say, our with our situation right now, we just can't, can't do it currently. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's that's a hard expo. I mean, that's like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. <laughs> You're there for like yeah. 10, 12 hours, sometimes more, just mm-hmm. getting set up and taking care of everything. Um, now, we're running a little short on time, but I know there's one question that a lot of people listening are probably, you know, <laughs> like wanting to know. Uh, since people are, that listen are from like all across the country, and you guys are pretty much located right there in the Cleveland area. If, you know, say somebody's in the Midwest or, you know, out West, California or something like that. And they want to adopt an animal that you guys have available. Do you ship animals? Do you do like long distance adoption or do you have to be there in person? We, great question. And we don't ship. There's a number of reasons that we don't. But part of it is that that in-person react, uh, interaction is part of our process. Now, if somebody is known to us, for instance, a person who lived in Cleveland and moved elsewhere, or a person who has come to us and adopted previously, but happens yeah. to live remotely, we will consider remote adoptions. However, we try to arrange transport on those animals rather than shipping. So for instance, several years ago, we adopted a number of boa constrictors to a gentleman in the Boston area. I had to be up there for a programming college programming convention. So rather than shipping, I brought those animals with me. He met me at the hotel to pick them up and, you know, and it worked out fine. 
So we will do long distance adoptions. I'm not going to say that shipping is out of the question down the road, but at the current time, that in-person reaction, I, I, what I fear is that if, I, if we start shipping, we're going to become just another seller and we're not, we're a rescue. I think we need to make sure that we keep sight of that. I think the yeah. classic example of that a few years ago, we got a call, uh, a keeper had passed away at a very young age and we were asked to come in and get some quote, large lizards, which turned out to be mostly panther chameleons. We brought 13 panther chameleons into the rescue, but we grabbed some empty cages for some of the baby lizards. And while we were arranging on a gecko in one of the cages, mm. so it turns out this guy was breeding Lichianus geckos, the giant geckos. Yeah. And so when we went back to pick up the rest of the animals, we weren't looking for gecko, but when we went to um, pick up the rest of those, we uh, found a half dozen adult lychees. So at that point in time, we had Lichianus geckos. We had Chihuahua geckos from this uh, home. We had no leopard geckos in the building, though. And so I yeah. happened to post them, and we started getting inquiries from all over the world about these oh. leeches. And so we really had to, to pin down how we were going to deal with that. It was pretty important. So, yeah, so for the time being, nothing remote unless we can get people to us or if we can get the animal to them after they visited us. Uh, like if we were to meet somebody at NARBC and we had a good feeling about them, we would then you know, possibly arrange transport of an animal again through our transport network. But no shipping at the current time. Okay. And since I, I believe like I'm only about two and a half hours away from you guys. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love if, if it's okay with you guys, or maybe once you, you know, are done doing your renovations and stuff, but I, I'd like to come out and visit you guys in person, uh, maybe make a video just kind of showcasing, you know, what, what your facility looks like, all the different species and stuff you have. Uh, I mean, is that something you would be uh, amenable to? Absolutely. Yeah. We, yeah. We'd love to have you come out. Yeah, that would be that would be great. So just to wrap things up real quick, uh, would you mind just uh, I know I know you mentioned it more than once in the podcast, but just kind of like just have it all localized uh, how to get in touch with you guys, what your hours are and how to donate. Sure. Yeah, yeah we are the Herbs Alive Foundation. We are located at 1489 Garden Drive, in South Euclid, Ohio. That's 44121. If you're map questing or, or GPSing it, map quest, an old guy, Luddite, sorry, um, our our. Our email is herbsalive, all one word, H-E-R-P-S-A-L-I-V-E, at earthlink.net. Our Facebook page, just search Herbs Alive. It'll come right up. Uh, those are the best ways to reach us. Our phone is 216-374-1392. Public hours, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Wednesday evenings from 4 until 9. Appointments, if you're going to be passing through. If you're, if you're national, if you're traveling through the area and you're a keeper and you're from Massachusetts or New York, and you're passing through on a Friday, I live 10 minutes from the rescue. If I don't have anything else going on and you want to see the place, I'm happy to open it up for you and have you check it out. Uh, so give us a call and check, even if you're going to be coming through uh, on a day where we're not normally open, or if you're coming in to do a day trip, maybe to check the museums or see the Indians play or something like that. If you want to spend a couple of hours, uh, we can open it up for you if we know you're coming in advance as well. So give us a call, drop us an email. And obviously, we appreciate the chance to get the word out on this uh, on this podcast. But any kind of support that you guys can send, don't want to make it sound like an, uh, an infomercial. But uh, obviously, as a nonprofit, we appreciate and the help any of you can give us out there. It, it, it's a kind of unique kind of deal when you're doing rescue, and uh, it's the same. It's always different. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And you know, I I, I think that uh, I'm going to try and set it up. You know, this podcast we're recording it on what is it Friday, so it'll be out the following Thursday. 
but you know, maybe I can uh, work with you a little bit between now and then and try and set up some kind of fun drive. So people that are listening to the podcast, sure. you know, that want to want to support, there'll be a link, uh, you know, in the description, the YouTube video or in the, you know, the notes, show notes, uh, whether you listen to it on Spotify or anything like that, where you can, you know, it will just be a link where you can, you can donate directly and, and really kinda, be fabulous. Yeah. That would, that would be great. And, and just, uh, I mean, not to like be a, a nitpicking or anything like that, but I don't think anybody's going to go see the Cleveland Indians anymore. <laughs> they changed their name to oh, Guardian. Please. <laughs> don't, don't stop. What are you, a Pirates fan? God forbid. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> exactly what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was still flipping away from the Olympics last night to watch the Indians play. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's been really great talking to you. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and highly suggest anybody, you know, come and, and, and support you all and everything that you're doing. Um, is, is there anything else you wanted to uh, to mention or shout out before we before we take off here? Like I said, I pre- we appreciate the opportunity to be with you. If uh, I mentioned, I give shouts out to some of our corporate supporters. If I missed anybody, I'm sorry. But if anybody does have any questions, you know, we, we touched on just the surface of a lot of different things about what we do. If anybody has any questions about our process and how we do things, drop us an email, drop us a Facebook message, happy to answer any questions you have. Uh, like I say, we consider, we tell everybody that we want to give them as much information as we can. We don't care whether you adopt from us, buy from a breed or buy from a pet store. What we want to make sure is that we don't end up with your animal in two years. So we want to make sure you have all the information you need. So education is a very, very important part of what we do at the rescue and making sure that people have all the proper information that they need. So they have all the info, all the husbandry techniques, so on and so forth. So we can discuss multiple options in certain cases. You know, bioactive enclosures, of course, right now are a huge thing. Something we're just starting into a little bit, but I have several volunteers who are experts on bioactive. We can give you that kind of information or refer you to somebody who can. And we, you know, we're happy to answer those questions. We tell everybody there's no such thing as a stupid question unless you have to ask it twice. <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, well, well, Keith, thank you so much for coming on and everybody listening. Thank you so much. Make sure that you are subscribed to the YouTube channel or you're you know, following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, where, whatever platform that you use to listen to podcasts. Uh, and be sure to check the show notes or the description below. Uh, there will be a link to Herps Alive website as well as uh, you know, a link to uh, you know, some kind of fun drive. Uh, try to help raise some money. Uh, help them out. And uh, I'll also link all of their social media down there as well, a Facebook page and stuff like that. So, you know, if you want to get in contact with Keith and, and everybody over at Herbs Alive, uh, I'll make sure to have all that information down there and let's show them some love. Keith, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you coming on and being willing to speak with us. And, we appreciate uh, the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, hopefully I'll see you in person sometime in the near future, as long as we you don't got get it. again. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next week. Y'all have a great weekend.